Good morning. Uh, so this morning, um, as I said in the scripture reading, we're going to be continuing a series for another few weeks here. Uh, six lessons that Cody and I are going to be teaching back and forth through Second Peter chapter 1. Um, and the scripture reading goes through verse 15, but really we're focusing on verses 1 through 13. And the sermon this morning, like you see on the board here, is focused on verses 3 and 4 and God's invitation to partake and share in his divine nature. So we're going to be focusing on that this morning. Um, And I just want to put back into your mind, if you were here last week, Cody's lesson to introduce this series on the secret sauce. If you weren't here, that might sound really confusing, what that would mean. Um, But the idea is a pattern for godly, effective growth is in the first part of this chapter. And the reason we're studying this is in the very top heading there, that's kind of the title for the series, is what manner of people ought you to be? That question is asked in chapter 3. Really the idea is God and what he's done, it should convict us, it should encourage us, it should motivate us to seek him, to seek to grow in him, to seek to be as much as we can like him, and to share in everything that he's given us to share him that brings us into this promise of his divine nature. And so Cody looked at last week, how God has a blueprint or a recipe, as it were, that if we follow the promise of this recipe, God will fulfill his word and make us like him. And it should motivate us to follow things as they are outlined and to follow his word as it's stated and to apply these qualities as we see them. So I want to read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll kind of get started with the lesson this morning. But this is going to be leading into the next lesson on internal growth. So that's what we're going to be going by the end of this lesson. Verses 1 through, one through 4, we'll read this again. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us or who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So with verse 4, it mentions that by these promises, these great magnificent promises, We can partake in God's divine nature. And our trust and dependence on God, really just to say our faith. Our faith is really based in God's nature. Our our trust in God is based in whether or not his nature is true, whether or not God is reliable, whether we can trust God at his word and that his character proves that what he says is true and dependable, even if to us, we see things differently than God. If God's nature is proven, then we can trust God at his word and trust his promises, even when we may see things differently. So the first question I want to ask with God's nature and and the importance of seeing his nature as divine, seeing his nature as glorious and magnificent, I think how we have to think about this is we need to think, how can we see God's promise to share his nature as precious and magnificent. I would argue that the promise that we can actually share in God's divine nature 
is the greatest invitation, it's the greatest promise that God could possibly make to us. It's the most expensive promise, the most costly thing that God could offer to us. So how do we see it that way, though? And I think the key thing is in the text in verse 4, we're able to see God's promise of partaking in his nature as being glorious, magnificent, and precious to us when we see more clearly the reality of the world's nature as God defines it in direct contrast to God's nature. So if, if I asked you how you see the world, what would you say? Um, or if I asked you, do you believe what God says about the nature of the world? What would you say? What if I describe the world to you in this way? There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Those or whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So if I asked you, is that an accurate description of the world? What would you say? And even if you agreed initially, what if I pressed you on that question? Eventually, would you say, well, I mean, yeah, but not really. You know, I know it says that, but it's not really what I see, and it really doesn't seem as bad as you just described. Well, what I read was straight out of Romans chapter 3. And what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 is that the, gospels reveal, the gospel has revealed the righteousness of God in a way that helps us to see the world in its true base nature as God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, right? And so it's very fundamental that we appreciate the reality of what God says about the world and that we trust that how he's defined the world, how he describes the world is true and we respect that and we comprehend that and grow in that even when what we may think we are seeing and experiencing is different. I think a way to think about this, this, just bear with me for a minute. Has everybody heard of Tide Pods? So Tide Pods are a concentrated laundry detergent that comes in the form of a little package you put in your washing machine that looks like candy. Um, and people consume these laundry detergent packages that are more concentrated than normal laundry detergent. Because again, like for some reason, they decided they wanted to make it look like delicious candy. And if, you, if you've seen those, you know that it seriously does look like candy. In fact, there was a senator named Chuck Schumer. Um, so many people were getting poisoned by this. And you know, all jokes aside, some people have even died from consuming these things. So in addressing this, he said, these pods were supposed to make household chores easier, not tempt our children to swallow harmful chemicals. And here's what he said next. I saw one on my staffer's desk and I wanted to eat it. And this is coming from somebody who was trying to address the danger because again, like the poison control agency was having to address so many instances of people consuming them. So the idea is like these packets may look like candy, but its appearance does not match 
the nature of its content, right? And so we have to trust the reality of these experiences and the warnings of those who know better, right? Even if by appearance we say, well, yeah, but it still looks like candy though, right? Well, no. Think about the warning label. Think about the people who made it. Think about the people who've experienced the poison, the effect of that poison, and even the death that's come from it, right? So we need to learn that God's nature, God is the creator of all existence. And God is the originator of all existence. And we need to learn to trust God about how he defines things he creates like somebody defines Tide Pods, what they've created, right? And I think it's helpful in thinking about appreciating and respecting the experience of others. We need to appreciate the way that God demonstrates these truths in extremely vivid and shocking ways. And one of the most important ways is how God dealt with Israel. God does not reveal his nature without demonstrating it in contrast of relationship. And so one of the important things about God's covenant with Israel is it gave him the ability to demonstrate by covenant that all that is good ultimately belongs to him and therefore when there is sin, he has the right to take away all that belongs to him. I think a way to think about this that might be more helpful is the idea of identity theft. If somebody stole your identity and they stole objects that helped them to be able to steal your identity and claim your identity, do you not have the right to pursue and take back what is yours? And isn't that true of anything that's stolen from you? Don't you have the right that if something is taken away from you, that belongs to you and is a part of your identity, do you not have the right to take it back? That is what's demonstrated with Israel. That ultimately God demonstrates all that is good, all that is enjoyable, all that gives pleasure, all that makes life have any peace or gives us any ability to have contentment or joy in relationship. All of those, all of those things ultimately belong entirely to him. And the problem is the world takes these things from God without assigning glory to God, and thus comes the confusion of not seeing the world as it truly is, but assigning glory to the wrong source. I want to look at Jeremiah chapter 32 on this point, and this is going to be the primary illustration of the lesson, is how in Jeremiah's day, the nature of God and the magnificence of his promises and his power to fulfill those promises was very clearly demonstrated. Jeremiah's time in Israel's history was vital. Jeremiah, the, the book of Jeremiah, is actually the longest book in the entire Bible. It's actually longer than the Psalms. The Psalms have 150 like divisions, chapters, songs, whatever. Jeremiah only has like 52 chapters, but they're enormous chapters. It's, it's a huge book. It's the longest book of the Bible. And the reason it's the longest is this again. This is a vital time in the history of God's relationship with Israel. Jerusalem, a city that was meant to be a hub for holiness and godliness, was drowning in corruption. Jeremiah lived in a time where that description of Romans 3 was not some strange series of sayings that maybe didn't make sense about the world and maybe difficult to work out. 
Jeremiah as a prophet had been prophesying in Jerusalem now for nearly 40 years. And it had been hundreds of years from the time of David or Moses and the nation had, had become more corrupt and more corrupt and more corrupt. And so God had been taking things that belonged to him methodically away from the nation to the point where, and I don't say this lightly, Jeremiah would recall that the condition of this nation had become so corrupt that shortly after the event we're going to read, women ate their own children in the madness of the immorality that was abounding in a city that was supposed to be a moral, virtuous place. Jerusalem was drowning in corruption. In Jeremiah 32, though, God had been promising restoration for the past two chapters. And God calls on Jeremiah to put his money where his mouth is. In the beginning of this chapter, verses 1 through 15, that we're not going to read, Zedekiah confronts Jeremiah about his preaching, and Jeremiah responds by telling him, hey, God told me that my uncle's son, my cousin, was going to offer me a piece of land, and I was supposed to buy this land from him while shut up in prison. So Jeremiah was imprisoned right now in like the court of the guard in the king's house for his preaching. But the idea is this. Imagine the Titanic is sinking, right? It's split in two. It's actively sinking. It's about to go in the water. Jerusalem at this time was being sieged by the Babylonians. It had been sieged now for two years. The land was ravished by famines. The land was entirely under enemy siege and under enemy control. Jerusalem was the last place left. It had been sieged now for two years. It's over. Jerusalem is going to perish. And then God tells Jeremiah, well, this piece of land that is far into enemy territory, I want you to buy that land because it'll be worth something one day, right? Imagine the Titanic is sinking. It's actively going in the water. Everybody's panicking. And somebody comes up to you on the boat and says, hey, I want to sell you one of the rooms on this boat. One day, I promise you, this room is going to be worth a lot of money. Can you imagine? You'd think, like, it's absolutely ludicrous. You know, you don't want to pay any mind to such an incredibly ridiculous offer. But, by God's word, Jeremiah buys the land, and so he prays to God about this. Verse 16. We're going to read verse 16 through 25. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you, who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds, who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and even to this day both in Israel and among mankind, and you have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders and with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror and gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They have done 
nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this calamity come upon them. Behold, the siege ramps have reached the city to take it. And the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it. Because of the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, and what you have spoken has come to pass. And behold, you see it. You have said to me, O Lord God, buy yourself the field with money and call in witnesses? Although the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Prayer's over. It can be kind of confusing to figure out like, okay, prayer is like a request, but where's the question mark, right? This is like one of the most reverent questions ever asked to God. Basically what Jeremiah is praying about is, God, I know who you are. I know nothing is impossible for you. I know that you are great. I know what you've done in the past. I respect you. I respect your nature. I understand your nature. But the city's lost. Its condition is corrupt. It's over. And you're telling me, buy this field of land for this price? The reality of Israel's corruption, it made it difficult to grasp the reality of God's promise. As we study through 2 Peter chapter 1, here's something really important to keep in mind. Those lists of applications can seem very daunting. And when we're confronted with the reality of our corruption in view of God's promises, even people who have faith and trust in God and respect God can struggle with thinking, God, I know what you've promised. I know that you're powerful. I know that you can do anything. But I'm so far gone. I see what you're saying, but it just seems impossible. And it's hard to imagine what Jeremiah was actually witnessing in the 40 years prophesying and the only thing, the only thing that happened through all of that effort, after all this work that God had done, after everything he'd invested, Jerusalem had become a nightmare of wickedness. And Jeremiah was living deeply entrenched in the middle of a nightmare. And God is saying, I'm going to restore this and make it better than it ever has been. That depends not on some magic that just causes things to come about all of a sudden. It depends on these people changing and everything that God had done. They'd only become worse. How can these people ever change to come back here? It seems impossible. Let's see God's response. And this, to me, is is one of the most incredible things God says in the entire Old Testament. Verse 26 through 44. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, And God quotes Jeremiah's statement back in verse 17. Jeremiah says, I know nothing is too difficult for you. God in response says, Is anything too difficult for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will take it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city will enter and set this city on fire and burn it. 
with the houses where people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been only or have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth. For the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day that they built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from before my face because of all the evil of the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned their back to me and not their face. Though I taught them teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. But they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded them, nor had it even entered my, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So pause right there for a moment. I have first on the board here, Jeremiah understands this is a bad situation. How does God respond at the first? What does he say? God's response is you have no idea. The condition that this nation is in is so much worse than you can even fathom. The sin is so much deeper. Its effects go so much further. It is so much greater than you could possibly understand. Jeremiah says they've not done a thing of all that you commanded. And God says they have never stopped provoking me to anger from the beginning. Hundreds of years of being provoked patiently. If we really understand the depth of what God is revealing here, his next statements become so much more precious and magnificent. And here is ultimately what relates to the lesson. Let's read verse 36 through 44 and talk about what's on the board here. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. Fields will be bought in this land of which you say, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares, declares the Lord. 
God's nature. Jeremiah understood so many good, true things about God's nature. Jeremiah understood true things about the world and its corruption around him. But just as the corruption in his culture was so much deeper and greater than he realized, God's power and God's nature in his love and patience and commitment and ability to reach hearts to transform them was so much greater than Jeremiah could possibly understand. And these promises, not only are these positive promises fulfilled when they did return back to Jerusalem in the time of Daniel, Nehemiah, and Ezra and others like them, but these promises are fulfilled so much the more through Jesus and the kingdom that we've, given and we've been granted inheritance in. God can do it. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Ultimately, our trust in these promises isn't how well we're able to perform them. That's not our trust. It's not where we are and how close we already are to them. But rather, the more broken-hearted and broken in spirit we are, the better we can appreciate that our trust is in God's nature. Our trust is in God's dependability. That if we just submit ourselves and listen and open our hearts to God, he will faithfully perform these things. So God's nature is proven in his relationship to Israel, but more intimately and more briefly, God's nature is proven in Jesus. Look at verses 16 through 18. This grandiose work that God did with Israel is funneled in summary with Jesus, his transfiguration, his resurrection, and in Peter's transformation. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, in relation to all of these things, Peter brings out the importance of the transfiguration. I'll read this, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What was the point of Jesus' transfiguration? I think there's something vital that's easy to miss. You know, if you remember when the transfiguration actually happened, Matthew 16, Jesus warned the apostles who, who witnessed it, do not tell anyone about this until after I have risen from the dead. They didn't understand the statement. I imagine they went on confused, but they didn't mention it. And Peter seemingly is fulfilling that here. But I just want to suggest to you the transfiguration it was not only to prove that hidden behind his appearance was divine nature. Just as the resurrection, and it did prove that, just as the resurrection was not just to prove the fact that there is a resurrection or that Jesus did ascend into heaven. It proves this. It proves that God can and he does transfigure and transform individuals 
from a condition that is impossibly corrupt. Impossibly corrupt. And that the depth of our corruption in relation to God's promise goes further than we realize, just as with Jeremiah. But the magnificence of what God can accomplish and what he is seeking to perform also goes far beyond what we could possibly imagine. It should seem like a fairy tale to us. How can it possibly be true that God could ever be willing or that he ever could convert me from where I've been to where he's promised he can take me? And so the transfiguration, again, was not just to prove Jesus is divine, but rather that in Jesus and in the resurrection, as Jesus was crucified into an impossibly dead condition and put into the ground, God, through that corruption, raised Jesus from the dead, and the work of transfiguration has been open wide for all. Look back at verse 1. We talked about this on Wednesday briefly when we were beginning our study in Second Peter. Peter calls himself Simon Peter, which is distinct from 1 Peter where he only says Peter. Peter experienced the reality of being transfigured. You remember that the name Peter came from Jesus. And as far as I know, there's no like record of even the name Peter existing before Jesus named Peter Peter, which means rock, stone. Jesus took Simon, a nobody, just a normal person, and he transfigured him. He made him into Peter. The same Peter who, when Jesus asked him, who do people say that I am? And Peter accurately confessed his nature, that he is the Son of God. Peter then denies so fundamentally the reality of that truth that Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. That same Peter had become a rock. Not because of his abilities, his education, his strength, but because he put his faith genuinely in the Lord and listened to his word and internalized it. We'll talk more about that with the last point. But notice in verse 1, I appreciate the English Standard Version, the ESV of this verse. So he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, The ESV says, of equal standing with ours. Peter is saying, what God has done with me, there's no difference between your faith and mine. That just as Israel is a demonstration of God's power to restore broken, ruined sinners and raise them up to be entirely new and devoted and holy, God does that ultimately with individuals like Peter and with you and me. There is no difference between the faith of Peter, the faith of Jason, Eva, Antoinette, Johnny, etc., etc. And so you'll notice in verse 5, the very first thing that Cody will talk about, in your faith supply. Again, the question is not so much, what are you doing? But first it's, how are you receiving? How are you receiving God's word? Is it internally changing you? How are you receiving it? Notice in verse 2, he mentions grace and peace is multiplied in the knowledge of God. The more we understand about God, the more we see his righteousness, the more it humbles us, 
the more unworthy we realize we are while we see the truth of his love being lavishly poured out on us. We see in verse 3 that his divine nature has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us. And in verse 8, it mentions, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge. How are you receiving the truth of God's word? Is it leading you to depend on God with complete assurance? To know that you can rely on God. You can trust him at his word. You can trust that what he says about the world is true and thank God for his mercy that our culture is not the nightmare that it was for Jeremiah, but thank God for his mercy that we can appreciate that by faith rather than being immersed and drowned in the nightmare that Jeremiah was in. So finally, just briefly again, what's also proven about God's nature and these promises is that it's organic. This again is something we talked about on Wednesday briefly, but it's really vital we understand this, that growth in our faith is not mechanical. Mechanical would be like welding things together. Organic growth is like plants that are growing in the ground or like a baby growing in the room. Another way to think about it is people don't go to the gym because they're going to weld muscles onto their body. You know, you may, may have noticed, maybe not, not, not a big deal, but Cody has some muscles, right? And Cody has told me that when he goes to the gym, he goes for reps, right? And that is extremely painful doing a lot of reps at the gym instead of like, high weight, low reps. But in order to gain muscle mass, it's not the moment of that pain, it's the internal growth that's happening behind the scenes. It's the same with the plant, that the work is happening behind view. With a baby growing in the room, the the work is happening behind view. And so the most active and important work happens internally. That's what we're going to be focusing on first with these attributes, is we have to be focusing on the fact that this all happens primarily internally first. It's about the condition of our faith. You remember when people came to Jesus and were were healed by him. He didn't say, go away. Your active coming to me and being here has made you well. And that was a part of it. He said, it is your faith that has made you well. Faith elicited the pursuit And in the same way, if we really trust God for who he is, if we're internalizing his word, we will pursue these qualities and focus on them with all diligence. The lessons that we teach are going to humble us. They're going to challenge us. But that's not going to discourage us or demotivate us. We're not going to be thinking by works and think, well, I'm not doing this, therefore I'm condemned. No, we recognize that God is merciful and patient. But the danger is, that patience can make us spiritually lazy. The patience of this process, it can make us spiritually lazy. So back to the idea of going to the gym, why do most people give up if they're at first very committed and very determined when they go to the gym? A lot of times it's they're just not seeing results fast enough. It's like, I wanted to change like this. I wanted this to be mechanical growth. It's just, it's not reality. That's not how it works. And so the promises of God make us diligent through faith, not by sight. It's changing our perspective of God and the world and our position in the middle. 
Remember Mark chapter 4, verse 19, just how incredibly fundamental this is. Mark chapter 4, Jesus is talking about seed falling on different soils. And these soils represent the condition of our heart. And how are we internalizing? How are we receiving God's word? Here is what in this lesson, I think we really need to focus on in terms of practicality. What is the greatest danger we're facing that would make us unfruitful? So Jesus explains the seed among the thorns. He says, and others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Think about this with Peter and Judas. They both walked with Jesus externally. They both went out and preached. They both performed miracles. They both cast out demons. And one killed himself and the other returned to Jesus and became a rock. What's the difference? Peter internalized God's word. Peter let his desires be exposed. He allowed himself to be convicted by God's words. He let himself truly listen to the teaching of Jesus. He internalized the nature of Jesus. While Judas's greed went unchecked and unchanged through Jesus' ministry. But a fundamentally contrary desire, he never learned to escape that base desire that came through lust. Look at verse 4 again. We will never be able to appreciate the promise of God's nature as long as we are living in the sinful lusts of the world. Now we have to be careful of idolatry in our lives. You know, Mark 4, 19 didn't just mention the deceitfulness of riches, worries of life. It said the desire for other things. That was the issue with Israel that put them into that nightmare. They desired other things. They desired other things. What are you desiring the most? What are you desiring the most? The reality is our desires, our desires apart from God are self-destructive. It's only when God is leading our desires that grace and peace can be abundantly multiplied in our lives. So I leave that with you and Lord willing, next week we'll be talking more specifically about how to grow internally in the pursuit of the divine nature. If there's anything we can do for you today, if you are not a Christian, and there is no urgency to partake of the divine nature. Again, the issue is a condition of heart. And it's essential to understand that Jesus' resurrection proves that there will be a day of judgment where all will stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account. And God is giving us a way of escape from the corruption of the world so that we can partake in the most magnificent promise God could ever make. If there's anything we can do for you in relation to these promises, we can help you spiritually in any confession of sin that needs to be made known. Please bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.